0: This morning I may bring you God's word from the 11th psalm. I invite you to have that psalm open before you. We've already read the psalm. The psalm is our text. We'll not read it again, but I'll most certainly be referring to it, showing you the structure of it and the meaning of it as we go through the sermon. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, hopefully you don't need to be reminded that you are supposed to go out and vote tomorrow. And with that reminder, I bring to your mind uh, the entire federal election and the way things have gone over this time of uh, of campaigning. And and then that raises the question: Where's your voice in this? Who's representing you? If we just take the issue of abortion, for example, or to say it better. Who's representing God's voice in this election? It's pretty hard to hear it on a whole series of issues and on the fundamental question of from whom does one's power come to govern, if not from God. Who actually acknowledges that still today? Well, thankfully, there are Christians who are campaigning and Christians who are in government, and they do acknowledge this. But on the whole we wish it was much more acknowledged. If we move from the federal level and come to the provincial level and we look at what's going on with our provincial government and the introduction of a new sex education curriculum, that certainly doesn't represent our voice either and doesn't represent the voice of a lot of Ontarians. We can just look at these sorts of things and I could mention many, many other things to you and our response can be to sort of dig ourselves a hole and hide away. We become cynical about the progress of society, pessimistic about whether or not there is still a Christian influence in society. We just become unhappy and disheartened. After a while, I don't know about you, but I know for myself, if I listen to the news and it's negative, and then I have some particular case that comes before me from family or from the church, and it's also a difficult problem. Plus, I have a bunch of things that I need to get done, and I'm not getting them all done. After a while, I become very despairing and cynical about life and myself and progress. I become skeptical about all the attempts that we make to impact society. Um, And after a while, if you carry on like this too long, you become jaded, about whether or not anything positive will really come forth from this world and ultimately you're a defeatist of even trying. Well, that sort of mindset is the mindset that needs to be addressed this morning. It is addressed by Psalm 11. And so this morning I wish to encourage you and encourage myself, if I say I'm also one who needs this, that the Lord is actually in charge. Yes, the Lord is in charge. And here's a psalm of David. It's a psalm that grows out of his personal circumstances and he's got physical problems around him, but those physical problems represent something deeper, something spiritual, and whatever they are precisely, he finds the response or the answer to them in spiritual realities of God being in charge. David says, I trust in the Lord. And no one's going to shake my trust. And so he has this inspired psalm. Nothing can shake David. And the reason is because nothing can shake God. And he's absolutely sure of that. That's what we should all be sure of too. Nothing can shake God. Therefore, nothing can shake us. And in the psalm, as we're going to see, it's basically David's own brethren, his fellow believers, who are the ones who've become cynical, jaded, defeatist, pessimistic, etc., And the psalm might not read this way to you at first, but it's actually a rebuke of this kind of cynicism. So let's find our confidence in the Lord who is in charge. I preach God's Word in this way. God's faithful children should not be deterred, shouldn't be held back by cynical brethren. We've got to turn the influence the other way. Instead of the cynics holding us back, it should be those who take this psalm Uh, put it in their hearts, encouraging the cynics and saying, come on, the Lord's in charge. So God's faithful children should not be deterred by cynical brethren. We'll first see the problem highlighted by the cynical and then the solution highlighted by the faithful. So now if you take your Bible and you look at Psalm 11, it it divides basically into two parts. The verses 1 to 3, and then in my copy here, there's a nice little gap between verse 3 and 4. And then 4 through 7. This one has a gap between verse 6 and 7 as well. Just indicating that verse 7 is kind of wrapping things up. So two parts. And then the tone is set in verse 1. In the Lord I put my trust. That sets the tone for the whole psalm. Here's the heading, in the Lord I put my trust. And under that heading, I'm now going to relate to you one thing in the verses 1 to 3 and something else in the verses 4 to 7. And what David relates in the verses 1 to 3 is what other people were saying to him, and he, he repeats it back to them. It's like they said a bunch of things to him, and he's, he's giving an empathic response, if you want to say that. He's saying, okay, so this is what you said to me, right? And that starts in the middle of verse 1. So in the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain for look, etc., etc.? Now, there are quotation marks here which are interpretive. That is to say, in the Hebrew language, they don't have quotation marks. They just have something like the verb to say, and then you have the speech after it. And then sometimes you have to decide, well, at what point does the reporting of their speaking end? Where, and the New King James here has it end at the word mountain in verse 1. As if all they said was, flee as a bird to your mountain. Now, that's a bit unusual. Other translations make the verses 1 through 3, starting with the word flee all the way to what can the righteous do, as an entire quotation of what these people were saying to David. And our book of Phrase does the same. You probably didn't notice the quotation marks when you were singing, but um, the beginning of line 2 of stanza 1, flee like a bird, uh, has the opening quotation, and the end is the end of stanza 1, still do if the foundations fall and perish. So let's take the verses 1 to 3 then as representing... Uh, paraphrase of what these people were saying to David when they're giving him advice. And then the verses 4 through 7 is David's reply and his response to their advice. Now, who are these people who are saying this to David? Well, verse 2 they say, the wicked bend their bow. And who are they shooting at the end of verse 2? Secretly at the upright in heart. And if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So they use words like righteous and wicked and upright and foundations, even upright in heart. So these are fellow believers they care about whether you are white righteous or wicked even they recognize you must be upright in heart these are david's brothers and sisters at some level they share his concern it seems that the foundations are being destroyed and they expect that he'll resonate with their concern so they're not speaking sarcastically but with genuine concern they're his brethren now what are they saying they say flee as a bird just run away really fast to your mountain hideout, or or fly there, go and make an escape where no one can find you, and then they give reasons. Verse two. So verse one is flee like a bird. Verse two, here's the reasons why. For look, here number one, the wicked bend their bow. Uh, number two, they make ready their arrow on the string. That if you're uh, into archery, that means they've knocked their arrows. They're on the string and they've they've got the bow pulled back and they're ready to release. And not only that, but they're in the shadows. Um, Well, at least they want to shoot secretly, it says here. Literally, it speaks of them being in the shadows where you can't see them. And the result, not only that, who are they aiming at? They're, They're not aiming randomly, and they're not aiming at bales of hay. They're aiming at the upright in heart. And so the conclusion, if the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? The foundations are being destroyed. And so these wicked, the wicked are a menace. And the brethren then, these are like David's scouts. They've gone around, they've checked out the battlefield. They were quietly moving from tree to tree uh, in the shadows themselves so as not to be detected. And they saw, bang, one over there, another one over there, another one over there. Look at them. They're all just right there in the shadows waiting to shoot at the upright in heart when they come up. And so they're saying to David, you can't overcome them. These, these guys are archers. They're really well equipped. And if you study some ancient warfare before the time of guns, then an archer was an enemy to be feared, uh, especially an archer who could even shoot while riding on horseback or something. Um, their arrows could reach uh, much farther than one could throw a spear. And certainly, uh, as long as they kept their distance and didn't get into hand-to-hand or sword combat... Um, archery, firing arrows, was very, very uh, effective. So they say to David, look, there's just nothing you can do. Run away and flee like a bird fast, quiet, and far to your mountain hideout. Now, you can say, okay, so this is about a battle. Well, it's not just about a battle. There's more going on because they're aiming at the upright in heart and... It's not just that they're aiming at them physically, because the the, the, the climax of the way that the um, brethren express their concern comes at the end of verse three, or in verse three. If the foundations are destroyed, now those now we've moved from uh, literal thinking of archers to something more figurative. This is a way of speaking. So, you know what the foundations of your house do. If the foundations are um, getting frost under them and heaving, you don't replace the window because the window cracked. You better get down and do something about the problem at the foundation. And so, anything to do with foundations is something fundamental, something deep, uh, something that supports everything else. And it's not that they're putting improvised explosive devices and blowing up foundations. It's here has this sense of the foundations that the righteous would need, right? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's not what can uh, the framers do or something, but what can the righteous do? So these are foundations that the righteous would depend upon, that the righteous um, need, and when they're destroyed, it seems as though there's nothing the righteous can do. You see? So, That would have to then mean that these have to do with moral foundations. What's right? What's wrong? What's good? What's evil? And if what's good is treated as evil, let's say Christians are persecuted, being a Christian becomes something worthy of persecution when really Christians love their neighbors, and what's evil, flaunting homosexual behavior and adultery and so on and so forth, as in our society, that becomes good, then the foundations are destroyed. That's the sense here. And so nothing's dependable anymore, and so the whole description of what the wicked are doing in the shadows is really also a, a figure of speech to say there's a battle going on here that's much deeper than just uh, physical arrows shooting at beating hearts and bodies. There's a a battle for truth going on in the psalm as well. It is a spiritual assault upon the righteous. And though the, the wicked may use physical power, they may use persecution, torture, and death, they'll also use moral and mental and emotional and spiritual power against the righteous even all the hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, that is to say, the demons and devils. So, David's advisors basically say to him, under these circumstances, you better run away. And so they ask this rhetorical question in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can you do? What hope is there? Who can help? And how can anyone fix this? It's beyond repair. There's nothing you can do and so the rhetorical question requires the answer no or it expects the answer no. What can the righteous do? Nothing. Nothing at all. They're helpless. In spite of all their righteousness, there's nothing they can do. They should just flee away and let society destroy itself. And so this is the This is the advice of the pessimists. It's the advice of the skeptics and the naysayers, the cynical brethren. They believe the worst, and they no longer see how it's possible for good to overcome evil, for love to overcome hate, for righteousness to have its way instead of wickedness. So they care. They care. They care about righteousness. They care about what's good. But they think... With the foundations destroyed, the righteous are helpless. So when we say that they're cynical, brethren, we don't mean cynical in the strongest sense that they despise or have contempt for what the righteous can do, but that they strongly doubt that the righteous have any way of dealing with the situation except to flee away. This is is how the, the naysayers and the cynics Speak. And with that kind of advice, I mean, sometimes don't we feel like that's the kind of advice we have to give each other? Um, That's the kind of advice we might even read about, and it's the kind of advice that resonates with our hearts that say, let's just go off and do our own thing and let society go to hell in a handbag. You can look around and, and look at any particular um, thing, uh, issue, abortion, euthanasia. Try to make a, abortion an, an issue in the campaign or euthanasia that needs a law made and nobody seems to be jumping at uh, replacing the law that the Supreme Court struck down. And We end up with laws that are soft on crime in many ways. People saying, well, we should, we should regulate. Uh, substance is currently illegal, and so on. And, well, I could mention certain statistics to you that would be positive to you, and you would say, oh, that's good. In Texas, they're making progress against abortion. But is that really what you need in order to be encouraged? Do you need to see progress in order to be encouraged that God is still in charge? That's one of the questions here. And if you only look around at society, you might be quite... Discouraged. You could even be discouraged in the church. You may want to serve the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And there may be some difficulties in the church where there are uh, brothers and sisters who just say that certain issues don't matter, and we can tolerate things that, according to the scriptures, we shouldn't. But they would like to, and you may grow discouraged. You may grow discouraged with the fact that the church is still a mix of the wheat and the tares, and there will be hypocrites among the church. There will be those who, well, on an outward appearance, there's nothing that you can say that they're really bad, but you've never noticed that they're really alive either. And what does the Lord say to the righteous then? Uh, Abandon the church and start your own? Start your own home church? Start your own little group of the people who are really righteous? No, that's not what the Lord says in his word. He wants the Word to be preached. He wants our faith to be forged in the midst of the church that also includes people who are holding back and with the structure of pastors, elders, and deacons. And the wheat and the tares will grow together until the judgment day. In this case, remember that parable has the tares looking just like the wheat. It's not about those who are openly disobedient. Now, some of you may even have the situation that you're in a family where a good deal of your family members in fact the vast majority of them are not believers in Jesus Christ and so you end up being the white sheep in a black sheep family and this may lead you rather to despair and say I've witnessed to them for years I've tried to show them what it's like to follow the Lord Jesus Christ but you know what I think it's a waste of time I'm just going to give up I don't want to talk to my family anymore. imagine yourself in that situation if if you're not in it. And you can imagine yourself just growing despondent about it. And yet, that's not what the Lord says. He says, you're in the position to be the most likely person to have influence on them for good. And to keep showing them, in spite of their rejection, and so on and so forth, that you love the Lord and want to live for Him. There might be situations where um, if family life is disrupted and it's bad for the children and so on, you have to uh, part ways. And yet, you keep communication yourself as an adult to be a salt and a light. Well, we we know those sorts of things from the rest of Scripture. The church is here in the world and is supposed to be. Uh, You and your family have opportunities to witness or in your close friends or whatever it is, and we shouldn't give up. But Sometimes when you look at it, it seems that way. And David now has to deal with this kind of sentiment that comes to him in the verses 1b through 3. And David, I would say, is struck by that word foundations. And in his response, he gets right down to the foundations to support all that has just been said about sticking with God's plan for you wherever God has put you. What can the righteous do? That's the question. What can they do? And the assumed answer is nothing. They just can't do anything. But David's answer says, no, no, not nothing. They can do many things. They can call upon and rely upon the God who always keeps the foundations intact. And he says, what's more, I'm going to tell you something. The foundations aren't being destroyed. They're actually intact. And in Christ, in God, they're secure. And he will uphold those who rely upon his foundations. And the foundations ultimately cannot be destroyed because God cannot be destroyed. That's what we want to see in the second place, which is the solution relied upon by the faithful. And so now I want to recall your mind back to verse 1. I said that verse 1 sets the tone. In the Lord, in Yahweh, I put my trust. That's rock bottom. Whatever else is going to follow, David says my trust is in the Lord. And then the advisors are quoted by David for our benefit so we can all realize what sort of things were being said to him. And he wants to tell us You know what? They didn't have the kind of influence they thought they did. And the entire psalm is actually a rebuke of this position. In Yahweh, I take my refuge or I put my trust. How can you say to my soul all these things about fleeing away? How can you say such things to those who trust in the Lord? How can you go on telling them that the foundations are being destroyed? How can you recommend that they would flee quickly, quietly, and far away? Don't say such things, for the foundations are not being destroyed. David's message in the verses 4 to 7 is that the foundations are still in place, and they will always be in place. They can never be destroyed. If you have your Bible there, verse 4, The Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, is in His holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. So let's just see what those verses are saying. Yahweh is in his heavenly, holy place, his temple up there, untouched by sin. He's not shaken or moved or changed by all the wicked things wicked people do. He's always righteous, he's always good. And he's on his throne, verse 4, the second part. That means he's in charge, he's ruling. Nobody can unseat him from his throne. Nobody can tear him from it. Nobody can overcome him. He's on his throne. He's not weakened in any way. He's directing everything. And as one on his throne, he's also the judge. You see the next part of verse 4. His eyes, behold, they look around, and his eyelids test the sons of men meaning he scrutinizes all people the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve and he examines he studies he he probes and tests their hearts his eyes see right into them and his pupils focus in on their souls to see whether or not their souls are seeking to imitate him he loves the righteous do they he hates the wicked do they Hate wickedness. Look at verse um, 5. Then Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Notice the mention of the soul of God. It's to say the center of the life of God, God's soul. And David is saying that the very soul of God determines the foundations of the world in every way, but particularly here morally and spiritually speaking. What God's soul loves shall be eternally loved. What God's soul hates shall be eternally hated and cursed. And then notice how these parallel statements are in contrast between what the Lord does towards the righteous and towards the wicked. God's soul hates the wicked, but he tests. He examines the righteous, and the idea of examines is not that he's, he's just watching you, just watching you, looking for you to slip up, and then he goes, ha, gotcha. No, it's the testing of the righteous that is meant to improve them and teach them their weaknesses so that they turn to the Lord for improvement. God examines with the goal of making the righteous better, not to condemn them. And now there's an observation we can make about the very role of this psalm and of these advisors in David's life. You could understand and you should understand these advisors as the kind of people that the Lord is using to test David's heart, to examine David's commitments, to inspect whether his soul imitates the soul of God or not. Through the cynical advice of some brethren, the Lord is examining David's heart to see whether he will join them or not, and thereby to create an opportunity where the Lord will make David more steadfast in faith and move him instead to help his cynical brethren back to the truth of God. So, brothers and sisters, are the foundations actually being destroyed? Or is this just the cynical point of view of some brethren Well there is an eternal foundation of right and wrong of measuring what is good and what is evil in this world and it's even built into the world and it reflects the very heart of God the very nature of God the soul of God and you can rely on this foundation with 100% certainty that God is upholding it and will uphold it forever. Right is always right and wrong is always wrong, even if with our limited minds we don't always know how to figure it out in, in particular situations. But right is always right because God's law stands forever. And it belongs to the very creation of the universe that God decided that things should be a certain way. Good is always good, and evil is always evil. It's so whatever stands against God, and that's because the laws God made fit with the stuff he made, the creation. Following the right laws leads to the flourishing and blessing of his creation. Following the wrong way leads to distrust and unhappiness and difficulty and sorrow and disease and so on. So doing right brings about good. And the good supports, sustains and improves life. But evil always brings Destruction. And that's why it is evil for it destroys the good things that God has made. It hurts life and destroys it. And God, God will always uphold that structure. He will always uphold it that good or that right leads to good. And the foundations cannot be destroyed. The eternal existence of heaven and hell will always demonstrate that these foundations are rooted in God himself. David, is even certain of the existence of hell. He may not have a full revelation of it, but look what he says. Verse 6 Upon the wicked, God will rain coals, fire, and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. This is drawing on what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. And David asserts in faith that this is what God has in store. For all the wicked. He knows, David knows, that in this life the, the wicked are often fat and sleek, as they would be described in, uh, in Hebrew idiom, as we read in Psalm 73, meaning they're doing really well. But he will not let himself be tricked by appearances. The eternal foundations of the world are exactly as God has revealed, and on these David will build his confidence for doing what is right. So in the end, we have to read this psalm and we have to conclude that the foundations are not being destroyed. Isn't that a good thing? Society in one sense may destroy itself and condone all kinds of evil and try to even force us to condone evil, but in the end that will never last The eternal foundations of law and order and justice and morality will reassert themselves because people will bump up against God's reality. So when people pervert the truth, don't grow cynical that there's nothing the righteous can do, whether in society, in the church, or in your family. One kingdom grows powerful and mighty and becomes all full of its own glory, and what happens? It falls. So it's not true that there's nothing the righteous can do. The righteous, brothers and sisters, can do much. The righteous can pray. Don't be cynical. The righteous can pray. And that's not just saying, well, there's nothing else we can do anymore now. Well, at least we can pray. Prayer is the beginning of all action, of all things that we're going to do in the Christian life. And it's more powerful than all things because God is, and that's who we pray to. And number two, the righteous can trust in the Lord and be absolutely confident of His blessing even if they don't see it for the few years of this life. You just hold on to the Word of God as true. And the righteous in the third place can do what is right without ever fleeing from their moral obligation and their spiritual calling to represent the Lord. Just keep doing what is right. And if it lands you up in jail, do what is right. The Lord will uphold it in the end, even if it takes your life now. And the righteous, in the meantime, can be the model community of love, where people genuinely do care for each other and love each other. And they can advocate justice for the poor and the weak. And the righteous can confront the wicked with the judgment of Almighty God. And if you're keeping count, seventhly, they can help the abandoned and the poor of this world with food, clothing, and shelter, and above all, with the gospel. And So we can can just be the church, whatever the world may think of the church. And we can do all this with the absolute confidence that we are acting in agreement with the very foundations of the world. If we as the People of God know the Lord Jesus Christ, then we should never have to ask that rhetorical question. Oh, but when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? We should never need to ask it because if ever there was any doubt about whether those foundations were or were not intact, if ever people thought the foundations of this world were out of order, it was in the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He submitted to the worst injustice that was ever enacted, and the devil thought that he was destroying the very foundations by putting the Son of God to death. God had made himself vulnerable, taking the form of a lowly man, and Satan, as a great giant, had stomped on him and put him out. And Satan thought, now my lot will no longer be fiery coals and and burning brimstone and burning wind and so on. I got free because I destroyed the author of life. What could that righteous man do? Well, in doing that very thing, Satan sealed his own fate and his own doom. What did the righteous Christ do? He submitted to this mockery of justice without protest was quiet. He let the wicked one have his way. And that's because Jesus Christ knew in his heart that the very soul of God upholds the foundations of the world. And Satan was putting to death a holy, righteous, just, innocent, perfect, selfless, loving man to death. And when, and when you do that, and the foundations of the world remain intact when they're rooted in the very soul of God, what happens? What happens? The Lord Jesus Christ must rise from the dead. He must be justified. He must be vindicated. He cannot be left in death. And so the Lord Jesus Christ confirmed and secured a legal foundation for, for the whole foundation of the world and set it in place for a new creation where all these things about the soul of God loving what is just and right and good, will be eternally acknowledged and will just flow out from us and from God all the time. Death could not hold Christ. Evil could not finally overcome Him. And you will see that forever and ever in a million and a billion years in a new creation. So why are you worried about the few years here? You see... Jesus Christ rose. He lives. He rules. And the foundations are still in place. In fact, they're more firmly in place. And that's why you should be confident. That's why you should be confident. Jesus Christ is your solution. And the resurrection is the reassertion of right and wrong, of good and evil, right side up reality. Your refuge, your strength, your protection, your assurance of reward. Is in Jesus Christ. And with faith in Him, on His heavenly throne, you can do all things. You don't even have to be afraid of getting into politics or whatever you want to do. You can do all things in Christ who gives you strength. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. 1 John 5, verse 4. So, brothers and sisters, these are in your mind, as it were, as foundations fundamental to life, unshakable, rooted in God's own heart. And if they're then living in your soul, then you're not going to be deterred from serving the Lord. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Amen.